Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Good to see you all this morning. Um, if, you, if I haven't introduced myself, my name is Gabe Phillips. I'm married to the amazing Fiona. I've got uh, incredible kids. I've got two children, which is crazy to say. And lastly, just wanted to also say, I've also got a mother-in-law. She's lovely and a, and a sister-in-law. But just on behalf of my mother-in-law, um, she, uh, just the incredible thing, this is what we do as family. Uh, she and sadly lost her, her sister uh, about a week and a bit ago. And she just asked me just to say thank you to this community who've prayed for her, who've uh, sent messages, uh, who've, who've loved her. And just, she just wanted to say thank you for that. And on behalf of the family, it's a privilege to be able to celebrate and rejoice with one another when we have adoptions, when we have new births when we celebrate baptisms last week. It was also a privilege to mourn together as a family. And I know none of you um, knew her sister, but just we want to say on behalf of our family, thank you so much for, for doing that to, together with us. So it's a huge privilege to be together this morning. We are f- wrapping up a little bit of a mini-series out of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 1. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you don't have to turn there. I'd love you to turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 3 to be precise. But before we get into that text, let me give you an update of where we are. How's that? Quite handy. Let's see if it lasts. Deuteronomy chapter 1 is a, a synopsis of where we are in this little bit of a series. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, and it's basically a speech by Moses as he orates uh, the, the history of the Israelite nation up to this point, and then he's calling them into the more that God has for them. And he, he's calling them, at chapter 1 starts off at this, this moment, a precipice moment, where the Israelite nation have been set free from Egypt in dramatic fashion. They've been set free from bondage, from their oppressor, from the pharaohs who have seeked uh, to crush them and do away with this Israelite nation. But Moses has, and God has dramatically set them free. But they've come now to a place where out of Egypt and then into the promised lands where they're called to be, is, it's a journey of 11 days. From Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea is a journey of 11 days. So being set from e- free from Egypt and into the promised land, it should have taken them 11 days. But a journey of 11 days has taken this nation 40 years. 40 years because they did not heed the promises of God. They did not trust God enough to step into the future he had for them. So for 40 years, they stand on the edge, the precipice of their inheritance, stand on the edge of the supernatural, stand on the edge of their potential. They're standing on the edge, looking in on what God has got for them, but never entering it. And we've said again in this series that actually the biggest indictment for us is that too often the greatest stories of our lives are what's happened in the past. But actually, I believe that God wants to reorientate us, remind us that the greatest things are yet to come. Because it's more important what you're saved into than what you're saved from. Let me say it again. It's more important what you're saved into than what you're saved out of. It's more important what you're saved for than what you're saved from. So often we will look back and we'll tell amazing testimonies of the radical sin we were saved out of. And God says, that's well and good. Egypt, that's great. My mighty power rescuing me from Egypt. But actually, that's not the full stop. It's actually just the mere beginning, the comma of saying, actually, I'm taking you into a land flowing of milk and honey. But too many Christians feel that this thing of religion and following Christ is dull and boring. Why? Because they only ever experience getting saved out of, they never walk into the into. 
And we as a church are saying, not us. We don't want to be that generation that stands on the edge of our potential. Be the kind of people who stand on the edge of promise, on the edge of victory, on the edge of breakthrough, but never actually see it. I don't know about you, but that's the cry of my heart. And actually, in fact, that whole generation in the book of Deuteronomy, for 11-day journey, took 40 years. That whole generation died without entering into the promise. They all died. Not one of them except Caleb entered the promised land. And actually, the, the incredible thing was, we see Moses in this chapter, he sends, as they see the promised land, they all stand on the edge. He sends a whole bunch of spies, 12 spies to be precise, one from each tribe, to go and check out the promised land. They go in and 10 of them come back and 10 of them say, the land is good. The fruit is big. The land is flowing with milk and honey as you told us, with promise and God's provision. But there are also giants in the land. There are giants in the land and they said, they went on with their own mouths. They said, we looked and felt like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we did to them too. So they said, actually, so I don't think it's good. And because of that report, they sowed a negative report into the community and the whole community based on 10 people's words of, of fear and insecurity disqualified themselves from walking into the promise of God. Only two people came back, Caleb and Joshua. And they said, yes, there are giants. But the fruits and the land is flowing with milk and honey and the promise and provision of God is ahead of us. We must go and take it. Two men had a different spirit, a different approach. In a sense, this week as I was reading this text again for my own heart, I, I could hear these, these guys coming back, the 10 spies with a negative report coming and going, Moses, Big Mo, that's what they call them if, you, if you're wanting to be aware of it. Um, it's the Passion Translation. Anyway, uh, anything goes. But they came back and said, Moses, you know, we've, you, you've told us again and again that there's this incredible inheritance for us, this incredible future. Hey, but the giants. Moses, the future you're painting, the reality we're seeing, it's a bit of a stretch. It's a bit of a stretch, Moses. They, they, I can hear them go on and on, and they go, we, we, they say, we see our insecurities, Moses. We see our fears. We see the opposition. We know you're saying all these good things, but it's a bit of a stretch. And as I heard those words, I, before I started to lambaste these poor 10 spies who get a bad rap again and again, I started to hear my own fickle heart saying sim similar things again and again where I've said God would, would speak courage and call me to do amazing things in him. And I'll say, God, you want to do what with me? I'll go, no, no, it's a stretch. God, that's a bit of a stretch. It's a bit of a stretch to think that you want to do that with me. And then God has spoken and said, and I was going, God, you, you want to do what with us? And I look out at you bunch of people, and you're amazingly handsome people. You're good-looking people, but I mean, the promises that God has got for us and what the resources I see in front of me, I go, it's a bit of a stretch, if I'm honest. If I'm honest. And yeah, I've heard myself say things in the past where I go, God, you, you want to save my mother-in-law? That's a stretch. You want, but God, you want to cause barren couples in this community to fall pregnant? Mm, that's a stretch. God, you want to restore really messed up marriages in our community? Oh no, that's a stretch, God. God, you want to cause a church to grow in Milnerton, the graveyard of churches? That's a stretch, God. You want to see revival birth in the city of Cape Town with a Presbyterian church and another church that come together, three churches come together to plant a church in a, in a climate where there's no unity, but in our city, that's a stretch, God. 
You know, the more and more I start to hear what God wants to do, and I look over my shoulder, I realize I'm saying again and again, it's a stretch. So this morning, I want to tell you the title of my message is, It's a Stretch, believe it or not. So why don't you turn to your neighbor? You have no idea of where I'm going yet, but we'll make sense of it together. Tell them together, say, It's a Stretch. Come on. Now I want you to turn to somebody a little bit further away, give them a fist pump and say, now that's a stretch. Come on. Now, there we go. Now we're talking. Cool. So the book of Mark, with that as a background and a, a preface, Mark chapter 3 is where we're at this morning. Verse 1 to 6 will be on the screen behind me. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Here we go. It says this, Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed or withered hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their high, hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand, or as the other texts say, stretch out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Let's pray briefly. Father, I thank you this morning as we come together in this, on, a, on a cold morning. I pray, God, would you warm our hearts with the, the fire and passion of your word. Would your word be the kindling that sparks the faith in our hearts. I thank you, Jesus, we lean in this morning, knowing that you are leaning into us. The, the, the creator and author of all eternity and all salvation is leaning into us. So, Father God, may a beautiful collision ar arise this morning as our faith meets with your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Three things from the story, and we'll weave our way through it this morning. A, a well-worn text. If you've been around church any length of time, you might know this story. But three things that I, I see from this text that appear, and we'll just work through it briefly. Number one is that I see there's opposition. I want to say this, in seasons of stretching, in seasons of enlarging, of seasons feeling living beyond your means, being, living beyond your resources, there will always be opposition. A quick aside, just to let you know, opposition comes to us in three forms in the, in the kingdom of God. It comes from three places. Number one, the devil. Number two, the world. And here's the shocker. Number three, from yourself. And I want to tell you that actually I think we give too much attention to what the devil or the world is doing, when actually I think the biggest fires of our inheritance is you, me, and I, myself. You see, in this story, we get introduced to people who are called the enemies of Jesus, and they call at the very end, verse 6, we hear it's the Pharisees and the Herodians, the supporters of Herod. And now the Pharisees and the Herodians are getting together, and they're trying to conspire against Jesus. Now, that's for us. We just read that one line and move on. Now, if we understand the context, we should be shocked at what's going on here. Because the Pharisees and Herodians take Jesus out of the picture. They would be at war with each other. The Pharisees in our day and age are your right-wing fundamentalists. If you're American are Republicans. 
They're, those, they're the hard-nosed right-wing Republicans. They, they, they're the people who, who you know, say, this is our thing. It's, it's this way or the, or the highway. They've got the one way. They're the people, the authority who's, on, on in, who's in and who's out, and they won't be swayed. They're like, this is the way. Then on the other side, the Herodians are people who've sided with the local government of the day, and they are a bit more tolerant. You know, they're tolerant unless you're not tolerant of our tolerance. Then we're not tolerant of you. That's them. That made sense. And they're the, the liberals of our day, you know, who, who are up in arms with, with, with anything that's against their, their, their sensibilities and their sentimentalities. They're up in arms, and they'll be a bit angry about it. So it's, it's like the Republicans or the Democrats. It's like the ANC and the DA. It's like Liverpool supporters and Man United supporters. It's like Blue Bull fans and Stormers fans. Do I need to go on? It's, it's like the antithesis of one another. But for these two groups of people, the enemy of my enemy is our enemy. You know what type of person. Some often people say, oh, Jesus was so like, he, don't, you need to be more tolerant like Jesus. You need to be more loving like Jesus, which is true. But the more I read scripture, I see Jesus was so divisive. He wasn't a guy that brought kumbaya, love and harmony wherever he went. He actually riled up the religious elite. So much so that they conspired to kill him at the end of the story. But in this story, we see that opposition. But before we start giving them a bad rap, as I said, I, I think the opposition's within us more than we see as we go through the text. I realize there's these enemies that start to loom large in our hearts. As Jesus starts to do this miracle, it says on the Sabbath, these guys were watching him closely. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they, their eyes were fixed on Jesus. But I want to say, it'll be on the screen behind me, they had eyes, but their eyes wouldn't see. You see, I want to say, what is the opposite of faith? Now, don't be too quick to answer that because often I'll say faith and unbelief. But as I read scripture, I'm often told that the opposite of faith is sight, is seeing and living by what we see. Because in Hebrews 11 verse 1, it tells us the definition of faith. It says, now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. You see, and I say that word with no pun intended, you see. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, what disqualified this nation of 10 spies, 10 spies went in and they saw the same thing that Caleb and Joshua saw. Both of them saw with their eyes, but only two of them saw and actually saw what God was doing. The other 10 saw with their eyes, but then allowed the opposition to change their sight, seeing the giants in this thing, in this journey. I want to ask this question here. What is impairing your vision? You see, my, my, my natural sight, when I take these off, you guys are gone. <laughs> I might as well be by myself here. Ah, there you all are. And it's an amazing thing. Often I, because, of, because we're in the car, my wife and I will get to the shops, and I'll rush in the shops, but I won't wear my glasses because it's a whole ordeal getting them out the case, changing the sunglasses. So we just we need to go in for time's sake because I'm not, I'm not trying to spy out things. I'm just there as a, a glorified babysitter to hold the kids while my wife shops. But often it'll get to the moment where I'll be walking in the shops and, and, and feel get very frustrated with me because I'll, I'll see people, but not really see people, and I'll think that they're somebody else. So from a distance, I'm waving. It's, it's our mate. He's like, it's not them. Stop it. <laughs> hey, now get there. Oh, that's awkward. Hi, nice to meet you. And Fee just has to keep reminding me of the shops. This is not church. This is not church. It's a public space. 
People don't know you. They think you're weird. Stay away from their kids. So I'm learning that, that sometimes I can't really see what's going on clearly. There's a shadow. There's, a, there's an image of what's going on, but I don't see it clearly. And actually, I think so often we are people who have trained ourselves to respond to our natural sight when actually we are spiritual people who have to retrain ourselves to see with spiritual eyes. You see, what happened in, in, in the scriptures is there's a moment where the disciples on the boat, they spend so much time with Jesus, they know him, they know his ways, they've heard his teachings. They're in a boat, Jesus says, I'll meet you on the other side. A storm rises up, and all of a sudden, Jesus starts walking across the water towards him. It's like this dramatic scene. Jesus, the one they've spent every waking moment with for three years, is walking across the water at them. And it says, they looked out in fear, they looked at Jesus, and they said they thought he was a ghost. God himself was walking across the water, but they could not recognize him because they were looking with eyes of fear. And I think so often you and I, so we've trained our eyes to look with eyes of fear and eyes of disqualification that actually we see God is doing something in our midst, but we're not even recognizing God. We recognize that we're calling what is God something of fear and stepping back from it. You see, there's a scripture in the book of Ezekiel where, 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 where the, 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 the angel of the Lord calls out Ezekiel and he says to him, son of man, what do you see? And it's this prophetic vision as he looks out, he says, Ezekiel says, I see a valley of dry bones. I see a dry bones. And, and, and in essence, the angel of the Lord then says again to him, look again. You've seen with natural eyes, but now look again. And as he looks again in this prophetic vision, he says, I see the dry bones starting to, to have muscle and sinew start to grow in them. And a vast army, they start to rattle and shake. And an army from these dry bones is starting to come alive. I always say, look again. Because I think our eyes can disqualify. So often we can, we've trained our eyes so much to the flicking of Instagram and social media and our eyes to the headlines that of, of prophesying doom over our nation and the, the salary slip of our, that is just never going up. So we, we start looking with those eyes and putting those eyes on our bosses, on our work, on our families when actually God says, look again. Look again. Because these guys had eyes, but they wouldn't see. Let's move on very quickly. They also had mouths, but the mouths wouldn't praise. You see, Jesus asked him a question. He says, is it lawful for man to heal on Sabbath? And he asked him this question, and it says they wouldn't answer him. Pharisees and Herodians almost, not they couldn't answer him, they wouldn't. They wouldn't say a word to Jesus in this moment. Something I'm learning, and we're just doing a crash course on faith here and stirring our hearts in faith. But something I'm learning is that faith has a divine twin called praise. Faith and praise go together. We've said it again and again in the series, but are we people who are therm thermometers or we're thermostats? Thermometers measure the temperature. Thermometers put up their, their ability and go, wow, it's cold today. I'm going to respond in a certain way. Thermostats set the temperature. And this is linked to the way we feel. Often, I, I've learned this long ago in Zimbabwe in the, in the, in the the crux of the depression, economic depression, and fear and insecurity, we were taught at our church again and again, they said, there are two times to praise God. When you feel like it, and when you don't. And I've, I've, I've had put that into the very DNA of who I am, that actually, I made the decision a long time ago, that either your feelings are going to determine your faith, or your faith will determine your feelings. And I've made the decision that actually, God, I'm not going to be a victim of how I feel. 
I'm not going to allow my future be hijacked by my feelings. I'm going to allow my feelings to come in line with my faith. And the how way I do that is actually I'm linking not just what I'm seeing, but I'm linking what I'm seeing and allowing starting to declare it with my mouth. I, I want to just encourage us that actually I'm learning the skill of how to worship myself into faith. Worshiping myself into faith. I tell you, there's moments where I actually ha- we have to make the decision that actually my heart feels apathetic. My heart feels lonely. My heart feels this way. But actually, my feelings don't determine my praise. My feelings don't determine the way I respond to God. My circumstances don't determine my response. No, the what God has done for me determines how I respond. We are people who need to start allowing our faith to come in line and bring the praise. You see, that's, we've said it again and again, that actually that is why the Israelite nation, when they went into battle, they sent one tribe out first, the tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Judah, Judah means praise. And I think too often what happens when we're in battle, what do we do? We send out fear. We send out anxiety. We send out insecurity. We send out depression. We send out uh, all these different enemies that we send out, the opposition that's burning within. When actually the, di- the dictum of the Scriptures tells us when there's battle time, when there's war time, send out the tribe of praise. Declare what He has done and what your feelings follow suit. They had mouths, but they wouldn't praise. And finally under this, as I just read through the text, I see once our eyes go, then our mouths go, and then finally they had hearts that wouldn't believe. You see, once we let our eyes go, our praise will stop, and very soon, soon our hearts will become hardened. They follow one after the other. You see, at the very end of that text, it says, Jesus was angered and saddened by their hard hearts. You see, if we'll get to it, but they'd just seen a miracle. They'd seen a man's withered hand become whole. Can you imagine that church service? Like, just, it's like wild. I'm like, just, we seeing just arms coming out, and like, it's just like, just crazy. But there are a whole bunch of people at the back going, yeah, I see that doesn't impress me. They've seen it, but their hearts won't believe. And it says this about Jesus. He was angered and saddened by their hard hearts. If you want to know what angers Jesus, hard, unbelieving hearts. There's a scripture that says that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. That is, it used to be quite a light and fluffy scripture for me. You know, God gives grace to the humble. Oh, so nice. But the second part of it puts fear in my heart. He opposes. He stands against those who are proud, those who stand back and disbelieve what he is doing. He said actually accusingly to the, the, the Pharisees later, he said, you have no room in your hearts for my word. We've said it again and again in the series, but that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So faith comes when the word of God is preached, faith comes in our hearts. It leaps up. But again, we've said in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, there's the opposite side of the story, which says that that the word of God had no value to the Israelites. Why? Because they did not mix it with faith. So I've been perplexed by this. How does faith come in my heart? The word of God is preached, faith comes, one scripture says. So I'm like, okay, cool, so I need to hear the word and then faith will come. Another scripture says, you have to meet the word with faith, mix it with faith. It's the old chicken and egg, which one comes first? I don't know. But I do know that for our lives to be moving forward, the word and the faith have to collide. It has to be this beautiful collision in our, in our lives. And actually, I'm learning that actually that I have to meet the word of God with faith and with expectation and with desperation. And God will do impossible things. 
There's, there's a story in the Bible that I love about Jesus. It's a story about a girl who dies, Jairus' daughter. She dies, and they say, it's too late. Jesus is on the way there, but they say, don't worry about the coming. She's already died. And he goes, no, I'll still come. And he goes all the way to her house, and he gets there, and her body is laying out in, for mourning in the upper room there, and relatives are mourning and weeping and crying. And Jesus arrives there, and again, if I was pastoral, Jesus, come on, come with some flowers, come with some chocolates, come with a condolence, maybe just pay for the, the, the wake, pay for the tea and the coffees. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He doesn't even go and look for somebody to, condol uh, to bring condolences. He pushes past all of them, and he goes up to the upper room and says, why are you all crying? And they're like, that's a weird question, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, honestly, some of them look at him going, Yo, he was not a great pastor. According to Arlene's, he says, why are you crying? She's not dead, she's sleeping. And it says they started to laugh. Can you imagine, their mourning was, in their mourning, their unbelief even superseded their sadness. They're like, no, 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 no way, you're just, you're crazy. So it says, Jesus did something profound. Jesus said, said right, that's it. So Jesus then, in, one, in, the, in another paraphrased version, basically looked at each one of those people laughing and said to them, get out. And he kicked them out the room. Then he shut the door and it was just him and the little girl. And with two words, he says, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. And a group of people who are laughing outside, what is this guy mad? What's wrong with this guy? All of a sudden, their laughter starts to diminish because they start to hear not just two set, one set of feet in that room. They start to see a, hear a little another set start to run around. And they start to hear a conversation going in the room. What? But there's only Jesus in there. No, the little girl's come alive. And as I read that story, I realized that actually for God to do the impossible in our lives, sometimes we have to say, get out to some things that we've allowed to bring doubt, to bring unbelief into our hearts. Something that I'm learning is that I have to say to the cynical, critical heart that very easily picks up cynicism. I've had to say, I, it's not attractive to be the critical person. No cynic ever went down in history. No naysayer saying, ah, it's not possible, ever went down in history. It's the dreamers, the people who believed, they're the ones who made history. All the people who doubted Winston Churchill, all the people who said, no, no, calm, tone it down. Their names are not remembered any longer. But I've realized that actually on a far greater level, I've had to at times drive out, not treat it with, with respect, but drive out cynicism and critical attitudes far from my heart. I, for too long, I'd allowed my mouth not to be a, a thing of praise and honor to God, but a, a sewer of defeat, where I'd speak death over people, where I'd speak death even over other churches. And I think that I'm the judge during executioner to speak things about other churches. And I felt God say, if you can speak that, that way about my bride, what are you saying about your bride? Oh, wow. That's just an extra one for free, just to beat myself with it. <laughs> eyes that won't see. Get your eyes. Put them into gear. Hearts that won't, mouths that won't praise. Allow your mouth. Don't be dictated by your feelings. Hearts that won't believe. Actually, take hold of your hearts and say, actually, get out to unbelief. Get out to cynicism. Get out to fear. Be violent with these things. Declare war against them. We do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, and strongholds that seek to devour us, seek to pull us apart. Let's declare war in these things. So there's always opposition. Secondly, I want to tell you from this text, I see obscurity. You see, in seasons of stretching, you'll always be tempted with settling for obscurity. What I mean by that, you see, I love this text. We're told there's a Pharisees and Herodians. There's a man named Jesus who's given big limelight. And in between, there's this man called Man with Withered Hand. It's like those old school plays. You know those ones like Tree Left, 
You know, it's like you don't, you know, it's like when they're selecting characters for the play, but they've got too many people to participate, so they need to start giving out roles that don't even have lines. The man with withered hand doesn't get named. He doesn't even get a line. In his own miracle, he doesn't even get to speak. Man with withered hand. And as I read the story, I'm just reading it from his perspective, and I suddenly started to realize, what, what, is, what, what has kept this man, what has kept, keeps us in small, withered places, places of obscurity? <laughs> and briefly, I want to tell you, one of them, I think, is fear of man. The Israelites come out of, in Deuteronomy 1, they come back and say, there are giants in the land, and we seemed like grasshoppers to them, and we also seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes disqualifying themselves because of other people's opinion. Shame and guilt keep us in small, withered places. It's the left and right hook of the enemy. Sometimes we are people who know that we've been set free, but we can't walk into the inheritance because we're still dragging around shame and guilt with us. Yeah, we've forgiven, but actually, but I'll never be able to forgive myself. Passivity is another one. You see, Years ago, uh, I had the privilege, I've told the story before, so forgive me, but the, I had the amazing moment in a, in a student camp where a friend of, I got to, for time's sake, got a, I, a faith rose up inside of me that there was a woman there that could not fall pregnant. And I remember being at a student camp. There are not many student ladies who are desperate for a kid. So this was like, wow, God, is this really you? And everything inside of me wanted to be man with withered hands, just go into obscurity. Don't, don't let me have a line in this one. Don't let me have a part to play in this story, God. But if the, the faith started to rise up in me, I thought, okay, I've got to do it. So I went to the guy leading the meeting. This was many years ago, and the guy leading the meeting was Mark Van Pletsen. And, and I, I went up to him and said, Mark, uh, you don't really know me. My name's Gabe, but I feel I need to go and pray for that lady on the floor because I think she's crying because she cannot have a baby. And Mark looked up to me with tears in his eyes and says, that's my wife. They're the only married couple there. And he says, and we can't have kids. Please go pray for her. All of a sudden, I'm like, ah, wish I could go back. <laughs> Long story short, with a friend of mine, we went and we started to pray. And we all, all we could pray, I've never done this before. So all I could, the story I'd reading at the time was John 11, where Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. So I just started saying, Lazarus, come forth. And I started praying it, and, and, and they received it in faith. And a couple of days later, they, after the camp, they went to the doctor. The doctor was amazed and said, what, what's, something's happened because you guys are pregnant. And, uh, and I remember Mark phoning me and saying, Gabe, just want to let you know that actually we're, we're pregnant. We're pregnant. You won't believe we're pregnant. And I, I yelled out at a coffee shop, I made Candace Van Pletsen pregnant. <laughs> we really value community here. Um, <laughs> But you see, that story is not the end point because actually I was such, such, I had filled with such faith after them. I was like, I literally remember walking out of there going, I got the power. Poof, you're pregnant. You're pregnant. <laughs> come on, come on. Like, and we know it's not, we know it's, he's the one who does it, but there was faith in my heart. What happened next was that actually time went by, but I, we, were, we celebrated with the story. And then all of a sudden, my mom, there we had neighbors next door to us. My mom, my mom and dad are incredibly uh, hospitable, and they got to know these people. And they found out their story that they couldn't fall pregnant. And my mom then goes, my son, my son prays for people. And I'm like, no, mom, no, mom, this is weird. My name is Gabriel, I know. That's what the angel Gabriel did. But anyway. But I remember my mom saying, hey, Gab, no, 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 you must come and pray for these people. Just come, come pray for them. And even though I'd seen God's hand do it once, I, you know, all of a sudden you're going, this is weird. 
I don't want to, it's so weird, I've never met them. And I'm like, hi, I'm, I'm going to pray for you now. Right? When I lay my hands, this is awkward. I've never even shaken your hand before. It just was like weird and I was awkward. And also, I, I, as I remember walking into that house going, this, Mom, why do you put me in these, pre- these situations? And, I, and I'm like, uh, you start to think, actually, was it just coincidence when I prayed for them? You start disqualifying what happened, the miracle that happened before. Actually, God, you know, it probably wasn't even me. Probably it was just, you know, your miraculous timing, God. And I, I end up to, my faith is part of it, but actually it's really not me in the story. And actually, the last few weeks, I actually haven't really been loving Jesus as much as I should. I've actually been a bit apathetic. I've even been indulging in some sinful things. And I start disqualifying myself, and, and all of a sudden, I feel like man with withered hand. I don't want to be this. I don't want to be part of this story. And, and, and I remember in that moment that I prayed again, a very feeble prayer, one that wasn't booming with faith. There was no Reinhard Bonke declaring the impossibilities of heaven there. It was a quick prayer, and I remember going, thanks, lovely to meet you guys, bye. They fell pregnant. They fell pregnant. My mom thinks, I'm, I've got, there's something going on here. I went to Zimbabwe a while later, and I told that story. And afterwards, I said, if anyone needs prayer, two women came and said, we want to fall pregnant. Like, oh, flipping. <laughs> this is my gig now, I suppose, God. I've heard news that they fell pregnant. You know, and I'm now, I, it's not now like this is, I never pray, God, I want that gift or anything. I just, the what I'm sharing about this thing is that actually sometimes I think everything inside of us shrivels back from what God has got for us because we go, not me, surely not me. Surely not me. But Moses declares to him and said, actually, it's time to, you stayed at this mountaintop long enough. Break camp and advance. Break camp and advance. There's an amazing quote that I love. It says, unbelief says, some other time, but not now. Some other place, but not here. Somebody else, but not me. While faith says, anything God did in any other time, he can do now. Anything he did in any other place, he can do here. Anything he did for anybody else, he can do for me. I want to call this life out of obscurity. Sometimes we think God will do it with fancier people. God will do it with more experienced people. God will do it with more holy people. God says, I want to do it with you. I want the blind eyes to see through you. I want to see the lame walk through you. I want to see businesses boom in recession through you. I want to see jobs created through you. I want to see marriages restored through your marriage. Yeah, but my marriage is not. No, through your marriage. God is calling you out of obscurity. And the third and final point this morning is opposition. There's obscurity. But I want to see in this story the biggest booming word is there's Obedience splashed over every single line of it. I want to say in seasons of stretching, there's always a demand for obedience. I love Jesus at this moment. Man with withered hand who doesn't even get a line in the story says, come out, stand in front here. And then Jesus says to him this, he says, stretch out your hand. I can imagine that moment he comes, he goes, with his good hand. You want to shake my hand? No, 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 I'm not meaning that hand. I mean the one that's hidden, the one that's been covered away, the one that's your shame, the one that you're embarrassed about, the thing that you put in the back around there. It says, stretch out your hand. And the story that goes on, I love what it says. It says this incredible moment. It says that as it says he started to stretch it out, and as it was stretching, he said it was healed, it was restored. Firstly, I want to say, we see Jesus in this moment. Excuse the pun, but him, Jesus stretched out his hand in partnership towards this guy. 
There's a scripture in Luke 1, we see it again and again, where the angel of the Lord says to Mary, for nothing is impossible with God. I've underlined that word with again and again because too often Christianity, especially in the Western world, we love to sit and go, nothing's impossible for God. I believe that God can do miracles. But the scripture says nothing's impossible with God because he's calling you into partnership. Too often we believe God can do miracles, but not through me. But God's saying, nothing's impossible with God. Will you partner with me? He invites us into divine partnership in this journey. And I love this incredible moment that, that I say, when did the healing occur? When did the healing occur? As I read this, this is not a, a typical manual for the way Christians should pray for healing. There's no laying on of hands. There's no even declaring. Jesus doesn't even declare this to come alive or, or hand be restored. He doesn't declare anything. There's no prayer line. There's no big counseling session. There's nothing going on in this moment. There's, there's, there's no binding and loosing. There's no, there's no spiritual warfare that's seemingly going on in our way that we presume it. Jesus just says, stretch out your hand. And at that invitation, the guy obeys, and in the stretching, it gets healed. He doesn't say, wait a few minutes, go home, get, get checked out. In the morning, phone me, and then it'll be fully restored. It gets healed in the stretching. I want to say this morning that what you stretch, he will bless. What you stress, stretch, he will bless. I want to tell you again, it's a stretch. Sometimes... Our situations, we disqualifying situations, we're going, God, that through me, that's a stretch. When Jesus is going, yes, it requires a stretch. It requires something to shift. There's a story as I bring coming to land now. In the book of 1 Kings 17, I told the first part of it a few weeks ago. It's a story about a woman called the widow of Zarephath. And it's a season of drought and famine in the land. And this woman, she's got a son, and she says she's only got enough courage and enough food for one more meal. So she is out picking up sticks to make a fire so she can go home and cook that meal so her son and her can lie down and die. And then the prophet of God arrives, Elijah, arrives on the scene. And as I said again, if I was Elijah, pastoral visit 101 to somebody who's got one more meal, I'd come going, I bought a care package. Two-minute noodles for days in here. Keep it going for a while. I, I would come with a, 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 so, some prayers and say, I'm so sorry, times are really tough. Let's really pray that the famine's going to end now. Let's pray into the, uh, the situation with the rain. Let's do that. We've got we to pray against the drought. That's what I would do. Elijah walks into the story, into a woman who's got one meal left, enough for her and her son. And Elijah walks in and says, make me a meal. I'm like, these guys are, something's wrong with these guys. But he says, make me a meal. And in that moment, there's an invitation right there for her to pick up a fence, for her to pick up eyes that do not see what's going on, mouths that won't agree with it, a heart that will go into unbelief and go, leave me alone. But in that moment, she has everything to go into obscurity and say, please, just leave me out of the story. I don't, I don't need your visit. Go to the next door house. But in that moment, there's an opportunity for obedience to come and to partnership to come. He says, make me a meal. And she goes, okay. And she makes her last meal for this guy. And the scripture with one line says, and their house from that moment never ran out of food. I can't tell you the mechanics of it, but I can tell you that there's a stretch. Make me a meal, that's a stretch, she would have said. And he goes, yes, it requires a stretch. But the story doesn't end there. Keep reading the story. It tells us a little bit later, Elijah stays there and it says that her son got sick and died. And she goes, freaks out. She says, why did you even come here to delay the inevitable? 
Why did you come and put false hope in me? Now my son is dead. What am I going to do? And Elijah says, give him to me. So Elijah says, picks up the body, picks up the boy, and goes upstairs. Seems like healings always happen upstairs. Just in scripture. He goes, takes the body upstairs, and it says the amazing line. You go read it there. It says, Elijah calls out to God, and it says, then Elijah stretched out over him three times. Maybe my eyes have just been looking for that word stretch. Maybe it is a stretch. But I see that there's a moment of healing. Elijah stretches out his full weight, his full extent over this boy's body three times. And after the third time, as he calls out to God saying, God, let this child live, life comes in the child. And the boy comes alive again. That which was dead comes alive because a man was willing to stretch out what he had for that child. And Elijah then takes the boy by the hand all the way down and says, look, woman, your child is alive. As I read these stories, I started to just ask myself, saying, what have I allowed to die in my heart that God is calling me to stretch over again? What have I allowed to die on my watch that God has called me to stretch over? Back to our text as we land here. The man with the withered hand, Jesus says, stretch out your hand, he says. That story is, 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 is retold in the other Gospels. But the doctor, the good doctor Luke, when he tells the story, he tells us, he says, that it was the, right, the man's right hand that was withered. Was a, now, this might seem a small detail for you, but this is huge. Because in the, in the, in the Israelite uh, culture, right hands were symbols and signs of strength, future, and blessing. Fathers would give an inheritance, bless their children with their right hand. They put their right hand on their children's head and declare blessing, future, inheritance over them. So much so that when Jesus died and was raised to life, we're told that Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. At the, at the place of blessing, future inheritance, of favor, of the right hand of the Father. But we find a man with withered hand whose right hand, the hand that's the, the ability to create a future for his family, the ability, hand that's going to have strength and future and faith and provision for his family, that hand has been shrunk and shriveled. So not only is he, there's a physical disability, everything inside of him has been shrunk down to who he was called to be, that he's a man who says, actually, I can look and stand on the edge of my future, but I can never walk into it because that thing is shriveled. But Jesus says, that thing, stretch out that thing and watch me restore it. I want to ask us this morning, what is Jesus calling you to stretch? I had the image of a kid. I don't know if you've ever seen it, kids, where they'll say, Dada, Dada, catch me. And they'll stand on the top, they'll stand on the top shelf or on the top, top shelf. I don't know how they get up there. That's incredible balance work. On top of the couch or top of the counter, they'll say, Dada, catch me. And the dad will go, okay, are you ready? One. Two, three, and the kid will go, oh, I'm a bit scared. I'm a bit scared. No, no, don't you. Trust me, trust me. One, two, three, and I'm a bit scared. There's a bit of a frustration that will come in their relationship. As I was thinking about it, I was thinking that actually over our lives, I was thinking of many of us this week, that actually I believe the Father is saying it is a season to stretch, a season to jump, and he's saying one, two, three, but if you keep on delaying the leap, You'll sit where you are will become your new normal, your new comfortable, and you'll start making plans on how to just work around the withered hand. I'll use my other hand. I'll start looking with my eyes of natural faith, and I'll start calling things that are natural, supernatural. And I'll start just bringing the limitations of my life to what I can contain, when actually faith is what He can do. And again, I remind us again and again, we are barbarians, life changes church. Civilized Christianity went out the door the moment you walked in this church. Reinhard Bonnke has a quote. 
because they often said to him, he would wake up in the morning, Rainer Bonk is a German evangelist who just sold everything and saw God do an incredible thing up and down the, the, the continent of Africa. He saw revival break out in, in the most crazy way. Whenever he would hear God say, do something, he'd phone his team and say, guys, I'm on my way now. We have to do this now. And they often said, Ronald, you know, we've got jobs to do. We've got, you've given us tasks and you phone us out of the blue and you say, I'm on my way. We've got to do God's spoken. We've got to act now. They said, why do you do that? And Rainer Bonke said this. He says, I feel that the eyes of the Lord are on me and I want him to see that when he speaks, I jump. I think sometimes we think we can even, let's delay our obedience to a more convenient time. Let's, let's, it's not right, right now it's convenient, God. I'm working hard with my withered hand. And God says, no, I want to bring strength to it. I want to say, you want more of God? Obey what he's already spoken. You want more of God? Obey what he's already said. So this morning, if you're here and you, you feel, oh, Gabe, I've been in a season of opposition. Everything I've tried to attempt seems like it's, it's fallen short. Maybe you've been in a season of obscurity. Maybe you're here and you feel like your faith or even your heart is withered because of relational pain, because of uh, addictions, because of fear, anxiety, of, what, of financial stress. Your heart has got withered inside of you. I want to tell you this, this morning what is required in your season where you feel life is a stretch just to even make it through. I want to tell you what's required to see breakthrough is a stretch. Will you reach beyond your capabilities, would you press out your weaknesses, the place where you feel you fall short, and will you hand it to Jesus? Because in the stretching, he heals. In the stretching, he forgives. In the stretching, he makes room for more. In the stretching, he brings the breakthrough. Can we stand to our feet, please? I've learned that when I need to pray for someone these days, I've put this word into practice for years now, but when, whenever I need to pray for somebody, I have to come close, I have to stretch out my hand and pray for them. And now maybe it's just the my way my brain works, but saying, God, in this moment, I'm stretching out my resources, which aren't enough, my ability to heal, which is zero. My, my integrity at times, my, does my faith line up with, my, with where I'm at at the moment? Not always. But God, you've said that I must pray for the sick, so I'm going to stretch out my hand. And in that moment, partnership with heaven's happening. There's moments when I don't have enough finances, and I'm feeling, God, I really could do with a bit more money. But you've spoken that actually I'm called to be a generous person, that you'll look after me. So I take my hand, money out of my pocket, and I stretch my hand out. That for me is me stretching, saying, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you in this moment. In moments when I feel like I'm tired and I don't have anything to go on anymore, but I'm standing in worship and I don't feel like worshiping, but I stretch my hands up. Because when I stretch my hands up, I'm saying, it's not my resources I'm plugging into. I'm going reaching forward. You have spoken. Today, I want to ask you, yes, it's a physical response, but I think sometimes we have the physical needs to ignite what is going on inside our hearts. Can you, if you have faith in your heart, say, actually, I want to partner with Him. I want to step away from our position. I want to stay away from obscurity. I want to plug into obedience. Can you stretch out your hands to Jesus this morning? Stretch them out to Him. It's a sign of surrender. It's a sign of faith. It's a sign of trust. Father, I thank you as life changes church stretches. Right now, there are marriages that are being stretched here. 
marriage is saying, my marriage, you say you want to do big things through my marriage, but it's on the rocks as it is. It's a stretch. Yes, it's a stretch that is needed to trust me with that marriage. It's a stretch to trust me with your finances. It's a stretch to trust me with your giftings. It's a stretch to trust me with where you are. Right now, I thank you, God, that your word is spoken and we take you at your word. Your word is true. Your word never returns void. So I thank you. Your word speaks over every single heart tonight saying, I have a future for you. I have provision for you. I have breakthrough for you. And I thank you as sons and daughters stretch their hands in symbolic response to you. I thank you, Father. Would heaven touch earth in this place? Would heaven touch earth in this place? And I thank you, Father God, that we are a people whose eyes will now look and see what you see, whose mouths will declare your truth, not what the enemy says, and whose hearts will be postured in faith so that obedience can kick in Jesus. I thank you, Father, that we are a people of radical obedience because radical obedience opens up radical futures. I thank you, Father God, what you are speaking right now, would we be a people who don't just listen, but we obey. I thank you, Father God. It's a stretch. And today we stretch and trust you for the impossible. I thank you, Father God, you're doing this in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.